Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, so before we get started, I just want to let everyone know that there will be quite a bit of bleep-worthy language, including frequent use of a colloquial version of a racial slur that Kese and I use pretty often. But there will be no bleeps. You might not even remember this. When I first reached out to you, it was, I, I think, to um, to blurb my proposal. Yep. And and asking you was the most difficult. Word? Yeah. I was like, like, oh, this nigga is brilliant. What? Like, I, I can't, I don't know if he knows who I am. What? I remember just feeling like. Almost like, almost like you're about to ask a nigga to the prom or something. So <laughs> right. I did not know that you was feeling that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. This is death, sex, and money. Why did you just stand there and let him kiss you? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. All money is spending money. We need to talk about more. Shit, you can die from that. I'm Damon Young, and for Anna Sell. And today. It's my turn in the host chair. And for that, I sat down with K.S.A. Lehman. Are we all right now? Are we doing this right now? His book Heavy came out last fall. It's a memoir addressed to his mom. Here's K.S.A. reading from the book. I wanted to write a lie. I wanted that lie to be titillating. I wrote that lie. It was titillating. You would have loved it. I discovered nothing. You would have loved it. I started over and I wrote what we hoped I'd forget. The book is so honest. When I read it, it hit me in all the places that that when things hit you, they hit you. It talks about food and money and sex and weight. I dipped the same spoon a quarter deep into grandmama's pear preserves and put the whole spoon in my mouth. I did it again and again until the jar of peanut butter was gone. The wailing didn't stop. I hated my body. It also tells the story of his mom, or at least what it was like for Kese to live with her. She had a PhD, taught political science when Kese was growing up, and had pretty fierce ideas about what was right for her son. She was also struggling to be the mom that she wanted to be. I knew you didn't want white folk to judge you if I came to school with visible welts, so you beat me on my back, my ass, my thick thighs instead of my arms, my neck, my hands, and my face. Kese lives in Oxford, Mississippi. I live in Pittsburgh. 
I'm the editor-in-chief of Very Smart Brothers, and KSA is a professor of English and creative writing at the University of Mississippi. I actually never met KSA in person before, but we're both on a book tour now, both in memoirs. Last night was the first night I was like, oh, we are walking around like inside out when it comes to like these events. Like you come into a space, you know, your insides are outside you because people, at least people think that. We sat down together in New York, which meant a flight for both of us, which is something that neither of us really enjoy doing that much. I have like all these anxieties and all these neuroses right. that, are, that are just converging. It's, it's like this lasagna of, of, of anxiety <laughs> that exists right now. Um, I take two Xanax as soon as I get to the airport, mm-hmm. and I like to be kind of woozy before I step on that mug. Okay. I still hate it, though. Yeah. I got this routine. Like Once I get in my seat, I have to say five Hail Marys. Wow. And they have to be perfect. If the um, intercom comes on or someone sits down and, like, starts talking to me, I have to start over. But if I mess up, you know, because there's a lot of words, Hail Mary, Full of Grace, Lewis. Yeah. Like, if I if I miss say a word, I got to start over again. That's amazing, yeah. bro. What's your free throw routine? Is it really elaborate? <laughs> is, it, is it elaborate? You know, and I, I don't even think, I don't even remember if I had one. For real? Kessa and I both tooped a lot as kids. And we both were actually recruited to play basketball in college. KSA grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. And Mississippi isn't really known nationally as a hoops hotbed. But it's bred some pretty serious ballplayers. You know, you talk about basketball in your book. You talk about, you make some references to people that I haven't thought about decades, like Hollywood Robinson. Man, I'm so glad you you felt (laughs) felt that. What made you gravitate towards basketball? I mean, you know, being out there with four other people or two other people if you're playing three on three mm-hmm. was was like heaven to me, you know? Mm-hmm. I think actually the most joy I found other than winning, you know, you win and you run the court and, you know, teams keep coming on, you keep winning, ain't nothing mm-hmm. like that. But I just used to like sometimes just losing and just being super close mm-hmm. to like all kind of people. Janky mm-hmm. body motherfuckers, big uh-huh. body motherfuckers, knobby need motherfuckers, mm-hmm. people who could really shoot, people who didn't have form but could still somehow shoot. Uh-huh. Um, and also, like, real talk, it was just one of the only spaces where we could be outside and touching each other, you know, mm-hmm. hugging each other, hitting each other on the mm-hmm. butt, posting each other up, mm-hmm. like, feeling, like, pressure each other's, like, the bodily weight. Mm-hmm. On one another. I, I, yeah, I, I, I know that. I yeah. know that feeling. I remember being, you know, like 11, 10, 11, 12 years old. And, you know, you would see older guys play. And they would have the sweat that would be on their backs. Yes. And it would be like this circle that, that was on their backs. And I remember thinking, I want to be able to sweat like that. Wow. How I, did you sweat? I, I sweat just from the forehead. <laughs> And, you know, under my arms maybe a little bit. Right. But, you know, you see you, you see the old niggas walk, running up and down the court. You know, there were so many things I wanted to emulate from them. You know, that, that goes, I guess, that, that connects to that, that sense of, uh, that sense of community. Yeah. That exists among men. Yeah. I don't know if you remember Ron Mercer. Remember I do. Ron Mercer yeah, I remember Ron Mercer, yeah. Dudes were in love with Mercer, but mm. we just couldn't say we loved Mercer. You know, like, he had that look. We wanted to look like that yeah. dude. We wanted to move like that dude. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had eating issues, so I weighed myself before I played to uh-huh. see if I could lose, like, 10, 15 pounds of sweat. 
But to do to lose all that weight and sweat, you had to bring lots of shirts. So like you mm-hmm. could lose more weight if you mm-hmm. put on a dry shirt. Mm-hmm. So like I became like the dude. I was a motherfucker who bring five shirts, and to bring five shirts, you got to be able to play a little bit. Yeah, you, you can't. You be can't be there. You can't just be can't sweating be and not and not play. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like come on, nigga. <laughs> well, you know, I'm like what I do right now is um, I hoop, and I weigh myself right after I hoop. Wow. Yeah, I weigh myself. Like, I, I wait till I get home. Yeah. Shower. And I weigh myself when I get out the shower. Yep. And that's how much I weigh. That's like inter- that, that, that's, that's interesting. That, that's, what, that's what's in my head. <laughs> that's, that's how much I weigh. Not how much I really weigh. Right. But how much I weigh after I sweated out five pounds right. of water. After sweat I shower. Sweat a little bit more from the shower. Sweat a little bit more from the shower. I'm butt, I'm butt ass naked. Right. This is, this is what I weigh. I ain't going to try to diagnose you, but that was me. Mm. In a bad way. Mm. But I had to weigh myself before so I could know the difference. At my worst, too, fam, I used to love to take pictures only after I ball. Because then your cheeks get sunken in and shit. Mm. Your veins are popping Mm. out more. But anyway, I just think basketball, my point is, like, I just think basketball is, like, just space if we were really allowed to interrogate, like, how good it felt to be around black men and boys in this way that I didn't really think was really fucked up. But also, like, what I loved about you know, the course that I played on was that when women came for the most part and started balling with us, people just respected them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And they weren't trying to like do fucked up things to them or make them feel less than because they were out there on the court. Um, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like the opposite, opposite happens where, you know, at least from my experience, when there would be women, women and girls who would come out and play, you know, niggas weren't like trying to like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go post her up. You know, no. go feel on her. No, she, no, it was like I never you, saw you almost you almost went the the exact opposite direction. We gave them like this this ultra hyper level of respect. The rules of the basketball court. There were variations depending on you know where you were playing, who you were playing with, who was watching you play. But the rules were pretty clear. Off the court, that's where things were a little messier. Especially, you know, when dealing with relationships with young men and young women. I was taught by big boys who were taught by big boys who were taught by big boys that black girls would be okay no matter what we did to them. As Kese explains in this book, the lessons he was told weren't often the right ones. Layla wasn't the most stylish girl in North Jackson. But she was definitely the funniest person in Beulah Bufa's house. Right now, he's describing a scene in Heavy when he was a kid at a friend's house. A girl he knows is in a room with three boys. The door is closed. What they up in there doing? I asked Dougie, whose ear was pressed against Daryl's door. Fool, what you think? Running a train. I smirked like I knew what running a train was. Really, I had no idea how running a train worked physically or verbally. Who were you then? Uh, yeah, that's a scary question that I want to evade. I mean, I'm often trying to think about why did I not, like, take part in, like, train running, gang rapes and shit that a lot of my other friends did. But I know I didn't. I mean, and I know one of the reasons I didn't because I was afraid. But I don't think the fear of doing that kind of stuff necessarily made me, like, 
not harmful. And that's why I started that book with the way like these dudes ran this train on my friend. And, you know, I was complicit in that. I didn't stop it from happening. And when she asked me to help her, I said no. So I'm just starting to understand now, 20 years too late, that there's so many different ways to be complicit Mm -hmm. in the abuse of real fucking people, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what black people always are asking white folks to do. Like, see how y'all are complicit when you're not actually calling us niggas and all that kind of shit. But I think even from 15 to 16, people saw me as like a good dude, meaning that I wasn't going to try to like... You know, I wasn't going to slap a girl. I wasn't ever going to try to, like, make a move on a woman at all, right? And that made people put their guards down with me. And, I, you know, I can say, like, I never physically did anything to anybody, to anything, because mm-hmm. I was just afraid. But I wasn't afraid to be emotionally manipulative. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. wasn't afraid to be, like, tell somebody something I knew wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you hear people refer to themselves as good, as decent. You know, and 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 usually, what qualifies this goodness and this decency is, well, I haven't done this thing, yeah. or I haven't done this thing, right? And you know, for a long time, I've like, I've used that as like as some sort of fuel to like, oh yeah, this I didn't do these things, so that makes me a good dude, right? Right. But I didn't do these things because of fear. Yeah. You know, even when adult men thinking themselves as being good or being decent. It's just very, it, it's hard. It, it's difficult, but it's very, it's crucial to interrogate intent. Yeah. And thinking about that is is messy. Scary too. And man. scary. Yeah. Even saying it, you know, saying some of that shit out loud. Right. Um, but, you know, if we really want to change how if we want to change this, then those are the sorts of things that we need to talk about with each other. Right. You know, instead of just just falling back on that, like that good dude, I don't know, going back into that good dude closet. Coming up, more messy truths. We've talked about all types of, like, terrible and vulnerable and difficult and explosive shit. But if you ask me to talk about money and actual numbers... Yeah. You get scared? Yeah, I, I'm I'm still shook yeah. with that because I, I, I believe that there's, like, a rudeness to talking about it. This is Death, Sex, and Money producer Katie Bishop. So in the first half of this episode, you heard some excerpts from Kiese Lehman's new book, Heavy. And Damon's also got a new memoir out. It's called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. We've added both of those books to a reading list all about modern masculinity that you all helped us build last summer. At the time, we were working on an episode about what it's like to be a man right now. I think we're confused about our place. There's a very unclear set of expectations as far as how a man should behave. The confusion comes from being told your definition isn't strong enough. I'm now learning it's okay to cry. But we've given no clear path to strength. I think this is the crisis. There's a vast silence at the heart of the interactions that men have with other men. There's no clear rules, so it just gets very, 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 very confusing. 
You can find that reading list and the episode at deathsexmoney.org slash men. On the next episode, musician Jason Isbell. He sits down with his best friend, who happens to be the editor-in-chief of GQ magazine, Will Welch. They talk about the things they're embarrassed to spend money on and what it's been like to support each other through sobriety. Well, I have very specific uh, memories of uh, exiting my, you know, walking out of the building where I worked at the time. It was in Times Square, and I was standing on 43rd Street, and I was like, I don't know, man, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. This is really not working. And um, you kind of walked me through some options. But what was nice about it is you weren't offering, I wouldn't even say you were offering advice. Mm. It was just kind of like, well, let me tell you my experience. And then I had a totally different approach, but felt completely backed up. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Damon Young, and for NSL, and I'm talking with KSA Lehman. So which is the hardest to talk about, death, sex, or money? Sex. My fear with sex, too, is like I just equate so much with sports and basketball. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, damn, I was so much better at basketball when I was 19. Does that mean I'm, does that the same, does that, <laughs> does that apply to sex? Like, surely you got to get some points for knowledge or some shit, right? You know, it's, it's, it's funny that you talk about fear, particularly in regards to engaging, you know, women. Because that, that was like the primary emotion that kind of colored my interactions with women and girls for like the first, at least the first 20 years of my life, maybe the first 25 years where I was much more comfortable, you know, as we were talking about the the basketball, I was much more comfortable being myself around dudes. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was with uh, young girls, particularly ones I was attracted to, I would just like, just, just dive just just basically compress inside yes. myself i'd be like one of them collapsible suitcases that like oh how'd all this shit fit into right. this little bag and and that that was me because i was just so governed by anxiety uh-huh. i was scared of being inadequate uh-huh. of um of of saying the wrong thing of being naked right of um of possibly, you know, a woman being into me and me not being able to satisfy her or please her. But it, how much of that is just about ego? Yeah, which is about yeah, amazing I'm, amounts of yeah, fragility, right? Yeah, yeah, about, like, you feel, you knowing that you could do this. Right. Not her feeling this way. Right. But you knowing that, okay, I was able to satisfy her in this way. Yeah. Yeah, fam, like, 
I mean, I was a big boy, so like I I was I was really afraid of I just I was afraid of hurting people or people doing things with me because I was just bigger than everybody mm-hmm. else. Um but like you, when I started to have sex um around 16 um and 17, 18 and into my early 20s, I was definitely just sort of obsessed with at the time I would tell myself I was obsessed with, you know, whether or not this person felt comfortable and good. But I mean, I mean, after every, every you know, during everything, I mean, you know, every five minutes, like, did you come? 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 Did you, come? Did you, you know, like young women who I was with was like, I'll let you know. You, you gonna know. It, you know, it's okay. We, you, when that, when that happened, uh, we both gonna know that. Yeah. You know? And so that wasn't about me wanting this person to really feel good. That was yeah. about me wanting to make this person feel good mm-hmm. and this person treat me like I made them feel good, mm-hmm. which I think sort of sounds, if not abusive, it definitely like sort of aggressive in it's a way. Manipulative. It, Completely it is. manipulative. Completely manipulative, right? It is, yeah. Um, and again, what I think is important is that I just don't, and this is not to take any responsibility off of us, but I think these are conversations not only that we needed to have, but I think these are conversations that we still need to have as like grown, grown ass men. I never, I've never really honestly had that conversation mm-hmm. until sort of right now. I try to do it in my work, but mm-hmm. not in public. It's a little harder. You know, thinking about how. These conversations, to me, happen usually between the computer and me, right? <laughs> or, you know, meaning like I'm reading your work, I'm reading uh-huh. somebody else's work, or I'm trying to write some stuff on my own. It makes me think about, and I'm trying to think about what we talked about, about like that thirst and desire we had to be around black men or just men mm-hmm. talking about shit and moving our bodies and whatnot. Um, I have been thinking a lot about like what actual like day-to-day friendship means in your 40s with black men Mm -hmm. like Mm day-to-day you know because most of the people that i would consider uh people who are like inspiring me to do the work of liberation Mm -hmm. and or bring pleasure to me with their art are people who i don't live around Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so i see them every once in a while like Mm -hmm. i see you know i'm like now it's the first time we actually met even Mm -hmm. though we like interacted a lot over um social media but is that enough? And does that sustain a friendship? Um, I, I hmm, that, that's a good question. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you think back to just that, that sort of community you got on the basketball court. Right. Where you're, you know, you're with each other, you're banging up against each other, you're seeing each other, you're laughing, talking shit. And, and that doesn't exist the same way when you're 40. Right. Right. With other men. So you have to find, you have to find supplements. Right. And the digital connection is a supplement. Right. It might not be as um as robust right. as as that interpersonal, you know, face to face connection, but it is a real thing. Right. It is a real thing. The digital connections are real. Like Panama and I Panama Jackson and I, you know, we met we first met in two thousand and four. Uh-huh. Started VSB in two thousand and eight. Didn't meet in person until two thousand eleven. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We met in person for the first time. We wrote like this uh this uh relationship book. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we met in person at the uh at the launch party in DC. 
After three years of working after together. After three years of working together and after seven years of being friends. But see, I'm interested in... And we well, live in... It's not like we live on opposite ends of the country. I mean, this nigga lives in D.C. and I'm in Pittsburgh. So I'm interested in how... Without putting y'all's relationship on the couch, because I found find that in my own life, like, how does it work that you obviously like somebody enough and value and respect somebody enough to build something with them, but not enough to be like, yo, how about we make an opportunity for us to actually mm-hmm. come together. I'm thinking about with my own friends. Like, for me, it always has to be around sport. Like, mm-hmm. my, you know, the guy I would consider my best friend, I didn't talk to him for the longest because I gained so much weight. And I was like, you know, all these fucked up things. I was like, yo, we used to play ball together. Mm-hmm. And you see me, he gonna think I'm fat and all this kind of shit. But when I moved back down south, I was just like, yo, if I'm gonna connect with Ray, how are we gonna do it? And I was like, oh, I'm gonna get some Lakers tickets. So we, you know, so we go to the games mm-hmm. as opposed to what I really needed was to just fucking go to his crib and let's just sit on the mm-hmm. couch and just talk. Well, it's just specifically with Panama and I, yeah. I, a thing that, that definitely prevented me from making that move is that I, you know, when we first met and when we first started VSB, I wasn't in the best place financially. I feel you. That's real. And, you know, I, I I definitely know there was some like some hesitation and that hesitation was born out of like an embarrassment. Right. Where I know he's like working on Capitol Hill, uh-huh. making six yeah. you know, easily yeah. on Capitol Hill and I'm like eking by first as a substitute English teacher and then I was working at some YMCA. Right. The most I made in a year before I was thirty was maybe like thirty two, thirty three. That's right. There were a lot of things that I prevented myself from doing in those years because I didn't want people to be as aware of my own circumstance. Right. Like do but do you do you do you think do you worry that you could ever be in that place again where you making thirty two thousand dollars or less and don't know where to you know, feel embarrassed about how much you are quote unquote worth in this culture? I I you know what I think that's one of the things that scare me so much that I don't even think about it. It's it's a fear like I, I don't know, like aliens yeah. attacking or something. Like it's it's just so it hits me on such like a primal level right. that I don't even bother. Or even worse than aliens, like hell. Oof. I definitely think about death more. I think about like just terrible calamities. Disease. I think about that since you I, that, since you start making money. Since I start making money. Since I have a family. Since you have children. Yeah. I am like in a constant state of like perpetual state of just of just hoping bad shit doesn't happen. Wow. I feel like I'm in a perpetual state of assuming it is gonna. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have kids either, but the money. So like, you know, I feel like I'm black people rich, but I feel like I could lose it. But I feel like I get. I feel like I get it back. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And also, I could lose it because everybody around me needs money. One of the things I'm good at is giving people money. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the death thing, I definitely anticipate dying every single day. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm going to die as soon as I leave here, go get mm-hmm. on this plane to Pittsburgh. And I assume at some point I'm going to lose every dime again. But I think I'll make it back. That's what that's the weird part. But part of that is I think because I have a tenure track job. So technically I have a job for life. But I actually don't mm-hmm. think that's true. I think they're going to find some way to get rid of me. Mm-hmm. 
So anyway, I just I think white folks gonna take my money away from me somehow, <laughs> and or the black people around me who need my money, I'm gonna give it all well, away. Gonna take it. Somebody gonna take it, but yeah. I feel like I feel you like if I, if, if I don't yeah. die, <laughs> I feel like I can make it all back, mm-hmm. which is a silly ass way to live in the world. Kese Lehman, author of Heavy, his memoir, which has won every single, I think he even won the NBA dunk contest. It's won every award that he could possibly win. And he still says he wishes he had one more month to work on it. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. The team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. If you're not subscribed to this show, Death, Sex, and Money, go to iTunes and subscribe now. I've done it. You should too. And you can find all the back episodes at deathsexmoney.org. And to follow KSA Layman and myself, you can find us both on Facebook. I don't know how to use Twitter. I don't know how to use Instagram. Twitter also is like a city to me. That's a good analogy, yeah. Um, they'll speak to you any kind of way on Twitter, like mm-hmm. the way they do up here. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm from Mississippi. We don't talk to There's like a decorum. Even among like the racist motherfuckers, mm-hmm. like they, they'll still be like, all right now, you know? I'm Damon Young, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.